Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be exploring the acoustics for audiences. When you go to the theatre or to a concert hall, the chances are that somebody has put a lot of thought into the acoustics that give you the experience that you're getting. We'll hear from Vangelis Kofodakis, who's an acoustician for Charcoal Blue. We're going to hear from an architect whose company has won awards for its refurbishment of the Bristol Old Vic, the longest continuously running theatre in the English-speaking world. We'll also travel to Manchester to visit the Bridgewater Hall, the International Concert Hall in the city centre of Manchester, and the home to the Halle Orchestra, as well as the primary concert venue of the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra. But before we go any further... I'd like to personally apologise for there being no Physics World Stories podcast in January this year. I sadly lost my father on Christmas Eve and Physics World kindly gave me the month off. But we're back now and I hope you didn't miss us too much. Of course, there is the Physics World weekly podcast, which I hope kept you company in the meantime. And a little later on in the podcast, I'll tell you why the trip to the Bridgewater Hall is particularly special for me. And I hope it's particularly interesting for you because I'll also reveal later in the podcast a very interesting quirk about how the hall was built to isolate it from the city noise around. But first we go to the Bristol Old Vic and it was Anna Deming's feature in this month's Physics World magazine which inspired me to make this episode of the Physics World podcast. Anna's feature is also all about the acoustics for audiences and the Bristol Old Vic featured in it. I must admit that I am a regular these days at the Bristol Old Vic. In fact, it was my New Year's resolution to see as many of the plays that are on there this year as possible. And there are some fascinating aspects of the acoustics in that old building, which was recently refurbished in 2018. The architects Howarth Tompkins have won awards, as I say, for their redesign, and I caught up with Tom Gibson, an associate at Howard Tompkins Architects, and Tom was part of the team who's worked on the design of the rebuild of the Bristol Old Vic, and the company, among other things, have been involved in a lot of theatre projects. As this is the Physics World Stories podcast, and I don't want to presume that you all know a lot about theatre, I thought it might be useful to start with a little more detail on how theatres are designed. The Georgian auditorium, I guess, was sort of traditionally was more of a horseshoe shape, um, with the uh, with the posh seats actually um, closer to the to the opening to the stage line, um, and I think that was sort of. Historically, there's much to do with being, you know, putting the important people on show as much as the, um, you know, the, the, the actors on stage. Um, that kind of evolved into a much more of the, the sort of traditional proscenium end-on um, format in Victorian times. Um, and, and recently, I think we've, you know, we've been sort of evolving that to go towards sort of thrust stages where the performers are kind of in the middle of the space. Um, and, and depending on kind of capacity and sight lines and, and levels within the auditorium, um, that can really help with um, the connection between the performer and the audience and the intimacy of the space as well. Um, and obviously acoustics is a kind of a key part of that, you know, how, how it kind of contributes to the energy of the space um, and the connection you have with the performer. So what are your 
main concerns when you're doing that design? Volume, so the sort of size of the space and obviously um, audience capacity, sight lines, is, and that's all sort of linked into kind of auditorium form. Um, and again, that, that sort of goes hands in hand with, with flexibility. Um, so there'll be very early conversations with the artistic um, and technical teams at the theatre to, to decide how flexible the space needs to be. So whether it's reconfigurable, what type of formats it can go into, whether it's a sort of more traditional um, end-on format, essentially, you know, a big rake of seating facing a stage, or whether it's more thrust into the space or even kind of traverse or in the round. So that's where the where these audience is kind of wrapped around the um, the performers um, more in different, sort of slightly different formats. They just want f- as maximum kind of artistic flexibility. So to be able to do everything from spoken word to um, fully amplified musical, for example, um, or rock show, that kind of flexibility, I think we're, we're seeing becoming a firmer part of the brief in a sort of increasing way, I guess. Do you have a preference as to whether you like working on something that's like a pre-existing theatre that needs redoing or starting afresh? Personally, I find the kind of... Usually the, the work on especially listed historic theatres, um, the kind of design work and sort of early brief development work goes hand in hand with quite a lot of um, conservation research as well. So often we'll do a conservation management plan um, and that allows us to understand the history of the theatre sort of you know socially as well as... Um, architecturally um, and, and sort of theatrically as well. So understand where the the auditorium design and the you know the front of house design came from. Um, so we would you know that that's quite exciting. You start to under, uncover all sorts of um, weird and wonderful secrets. Just going to say the Bristol Old Vic was quite a good um, example of that. Yeah, the 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 sort of history and the layers um, that had accumulated were sort of real driving force behind the um, the design concept. You know the the ability to do different activities and and sort of bring in alternative revenue streams from you know hiring out from from events and conferences as well as actual more traditional kind of uh, performance as well I think is is something that's becoming increasingly common. One of the most impressive features of the newly refurbished Bristol Old Vic is that foyer space, and as you enter the building from King Street. Uh, if you've been to Bristol, you might know this is quite a lively area close to Bristol's historic docks. And on a summer's evening or any evening, to be perfectly honest, the cobbled street can be full of people spilling out from bars and restaurants. The foyer at the Bristol Vic is a really good example of that flexible space. Um, so there were a number of factors that kind of inform the original design and, and kind of led us down the path, I guess, of suggesting that the foyer could also double up as a performance space. Um, so there's, there is a number of well, historic levels, um, auditorium levels within the original Georgian auditorium. Um, and we, ha- we were sort of tasked with connecting the auditorium to the street. So from a very practical point of view, we needed to ramp up from street level to the new foyer level and then make a transition up four or five steps to the, to one of the kind of key auditorium levels, um, as well as putting a kind of new le- lift in, which gives wheelchair users level access to each of the historic levels within the auditorium, apart from the, the, the gallery level, actually. But part of that transition, we realised that if we kind of created a stage or dais at the back of the foyer next to the, the original external wall of the auditorium, then the, the foyer could act as a kind of performance space. Um, and then that led to a sort of series of 
you know, technical design decisions on acoustics and lighting. For example, we put in the, the infrastructure, the lighting infrastructure to give the theatre kind of plug-in capability so that they can, you know, change it from a cafe, bar, restaurant in the evening to a performance space relatively quickly. And, and the acoustics was very much part of that. So, you know, on one hand, you had very sort of low occupancy daytime use and then very high occupancy evening use pre-show um, as a kind of cafe bar. And then you, we had to design the acoustics around the fact that you could use the foyer space as a, as a sort of gig venue or, or kind of theatrical performance as well. So everything from kind of demountable balustrades coming off the, the stage, the the perforate, perforate timber um, wall. One of the kind of key challenges was the higher frequency noise um, during kind of daytime or interval use when there's, you know, a lot of people in the foyer having individual conversations. That's to do with the amount of acoustic reflection. So what was quite handy was that the, the back historic wall, which was of the, um, which is the originally the external wall of the Georgian Auditorium, uh, which was built in the 1760s. Um, that was this amazing kind of patchwork of um, stone and brick and concrete from various phases throughout the history's, uh, the theatre's history. And that actually, as well as being this amazing kind of architectural artefact, was also very helpful in breaking up some of these reflections in what actually is quite a tall space um, with a big hard skylight um, directly over the kind of dais or stage area that I was describing earlier. And so that helped us a lot. We, we looked with, with Charcoal Blue um, and Vangelis at, at whether we needed additional absorption on the kind of flanks of that space um, and whether we even needed to, we sort of explored at one stage introducing kind of felt or, or sort of fabric drapes underneath the skylight to um, reduce the reflections off the, off the glazed skylight, um, which is obviously quite a smooth, hard surface. And we actually made the decision that we could kind of, once the skylight was installed, we could test that in the space. And that was probably the best way of, you know, ascertaining whether we, we needed to take addition, you know, introduce adi- um, additional absorption. What I found really interesting was this concept of like really integrated design and genuine kind of collaboration. And I think looking back, that's probably the most exciting part of the project for me, whether it's you know, working closely with the um, the conservation consultant and the archaeologist to understand the various phases of history, understanding that if we re- reveal that kind of surface of the original Georgian Auditorium external wall, then actually there are acoustic and thermal benefits to that as well. Evangelis's trust in us, I guess, to to sort of see how that plays out and actually to to, to take the stance that maybe it it could lead to sort of issues with higher frequency noise but actually let's you know let's wait until we reveal it and we can test it in the space so that just felt very kind of integrated which was which was really excited and again you know using the the historic levels within the um the existing building to kind of take you know take advantage and, and use a you know create a stage which gives the the theatre, the flexibility to use the whole foyer for performance or music as well um, was quite exciting. As Tom explained, there were plenty of design considerations, especially when it came to dealing with reflections off the foyer's hard surfaces. The other kind of real challenge during kind of performance mode from, from that dais was the, um, the proximity of one of the walls, um, f- uh, again, for reflection you know, of, of amplified music, 
And so the, the, the timber, lath, what we call the timber lath screen, which is the sort of slatted timber screen, which is above the bar, um, and that wraps around the space. Um, and that has uh, like a recycled um, timber board, which is very, has a very porous surface to it. And that's, be- that's sort of set behind this slatted timber finish. Um, and again, that kind of acts as really, you know, useful absorbency, um, you know, during more kind of amplified music, um, you know, and avoids a kind of big reflection off the kind of closer proximity, um, you know, off the wall right right above the bar, basically. Um, the other kind of helpful thing was the... Um, the diagrid, what we call the diagrid um, engineered timber uh, roof structure of the foyer is in a sort of crisscross pattern, which actually traces the um, the structural geometry um, of the Georgian auditorium and the adjacent Cooper's Hall, which is also another a sort of Georgian sort of town hall type space, um, which was built by the, the, the union of barrel makers, the Coopers in the 1740s, I think. Um, and, and apart from you know the, the sort of crisscrossing the, the beams to create quite a sort of stiff structural roof kind of surface, um, the the depth of those beams and the fact that we could infill the top of those beams, the recess, with more of this um, absorbent wood wool material again, I think, really helped us control the, especially the higher frequency noise. As Tom says, these days, theatres need as many revenue streams as possible, so they tend to try to make full use of the spaces on offer. I went down to the Bristol Old Vic, and in the foyer there, I met with the acoustic specialist from Charcoal Blue, who'd worked with Tom and Howarth Tompkins on the project. His name is Vangelis Koufodakis, but I'll let him say that better than I could. Um, I am Agilis Kvudakis, I'm a senior acoustician for Charcoal Blue. I am, I've got a physics background, I studied physics in Greece, uh, and then I did a master's in acoustics, acoustic engineering in the Institute of Sound and Vibration Research in Southampton. I've been working as an acoustician since, which was 2011, I graduated. <coughs> and I think this is like um, my fifth year with Charcoal Blue. The Bristol Vic was one of the first projects that I got inherited from my senior Byron. Was it always the plan to go into acoustics? I sort of wanted to build speakers when I was a teenager. I studied physics because it was the most, you know, like the common denominator. Uh, I was good at it, so that helped also. But it was always like, my intention was always to go that way. Acoustics is physics? Oh yeah, definitely. When I started studying acoustics as a master's, I was uh, amazed of how many um, simplifications engineers do to come to something more tangible. Because physics is, you know, is one way to do something, and, and that's it. But engineering has a lot of uh, um, give or take to make things work, rather than being like scientifically correct and impeccable. But yeah, it is science. It's yeah. a new science, but it is a science. Vangelis and I sat on the stage area inside the foyer, which has chairs and tables on it during the day for customers to have coffee and lunch, but sometimes is turned into the stage, as Tom described earlier. It feels more like an atrium than a foyer. There's a bar, lots of tables, the box office. It's a room with several purposes. High above us is the roof light, a huge glass roof, and around us, on the rest of the high ceiling, on the walls, 
and on the balcony ceilings are wooden slats, some thick planks, others more like balsa wood in a way, and behind most of them are softer materials, something described as wood wool. And it's not just an interesting design, but deliberately put together to shape the acoustics of the room. So we're sitting in the foyer of the Bristol Old Vic. Sometimes I consider a table full of people in a restaurant and I can't really hear the conversation that's going on. But here, you know, you can have a, a fairly hushed conversation before a, when it's really busy before a, a performance and, and, and have, hold a perfectly reasonable conversation at a reasonable volume. Acoustic environment would be different if it was a hundred people with, you know, drinking alcohol. You know, like things that make you a bit less aware of how loudly you talk. Um, but we we try to uh, to make it work for both situations, so people can enjoy, you know, a quiet cup of coffee, you know, uh, you know low music in the background, you know, a more quaint uh, yeah. uh, situation. And but then without that being on the expense of losing the excitement before a, a, a performance so when people gather and it's more more buzzing and you know we wouldn't want to, to completely deaden out the space so it would be, feel like a, you know going to a, a funeral or you know something that's not really appropriate what, I, what we did was for this room was to build 3D models of the space and uh, uh, see how it would fit uh, they tend to use and what we would do with it. Sound is reflected, diffracted and absorbed. These are the three things that uh, sound waves do in a space. And the more the, the more the sound is bounced off hard surfaces and is maintained in a, in, an air, in a room, then the longer the reverberation time is, which is what we say, um, what acquisitions say is how long a, a sound uh, carries in a room, how long a, an event is still heard after the, the event has, has stopped happening. So if I snap my fingers, if this can be heard for another five seconds, that's a five-second liberation time. Huge spaces have long distances for sound to travel through, between, to bounce off between hard surfaces. So say that uh, St. Paul's Cathedral has a 13-second liberation time. This has knock-on implications, knock implications on how uh, speech is understood by people who are in the space, how music is sounding, how, you know, everything sound does. Are you specifically designing this space so that that conversation is an audible conversation? Yeah. There are guidelines, standards that are, are can be advised when you design a space. And if you don't want a place to be dead, you, you have to be careful with how much you dress with soft furnishings and absorptive surfaces. It's a fine line. You have to keep a balance between reflection, absorption, diffraction, and that's how it is. What happens to my voice in this room? Some of it is picked up by my eardrums. Most of it is travels the room to be bounced off again and again until it's, dimin- it's so, this amplitude is so diminished that it just doesn't exist anymore. When it's reflected over a hard surface, it just is attenuated only by the distance it, it travels in the room. When it hits a soft surface, some of it is reflected back and some of it is absorbed and made into a thermal energy. So it's a change of energy from particles. Every sound is, is an energy, sound power, which is actually having to do with how rapidly and how violently 
the molecules of air travel around point of uh, tranquility. Okay. So since sound doesn't travel, it's just the the vibration of the air molecules travels around the air uh, as in a, in, a, in a wave field. The louder sound is, the wilder the oscillation is. The molecules of air don't travel in in the space, they just bounce off to the next one and then the next one and that creates a, a wave that propagates around the room. Everything that creates sound has this ability to shake air molecules sympathetically according to a frequency that's the sound. That we so base frequencies make uh, air molecules travel a lot around their uh, center of where the rest position, high frequencies make them oscillate uh, uh, quicker and uh, less with less amplitude. The audible range in, for the human hearing is roughly between 20 hertz and 20,000 hertz. In reality, adults will never listen up to 20,000. It stops around 16, 14, because um, the, the you know, hearing loss and natural hearing loss, not uh, anything that has to do with uh, being exposed to very loud music. Um, the bass frequencies are sub bases around from 20 around to 40, and then bass frequencies around uh, 60 to uh, uh, just under 200, and then mids are from 200 to uh, uh, say a thousand, and then it's mid highs which are half a thousand, two thousand, and then it's highs which are like 4,000 4, and up. And we, acousticians uh, um, and uh, audio visual engineers and sound engineers and all that, break up frequencies in frequency bands. So we have the th 63 hertz frequency band, 125, 250, 500, 1K, 2K, 4K, 8K, and that's uh, your whole range that you're working with. Do the different frequencies bounce differently? Do they behave differently when they hit surfaces? Absolutely, yes. Uh, uh, low frequencies are very notorious for travelling. I mean, when you, um, when you walk down the, down the street and there's a, there's a car with a stereo on, the first thing you pick up is the bass, and that's because the bass travels further without being attenuated. Um, whereas that's because of the molecules of air, air dissipate energy with the with um, it's a relation of how a relation of how quickly they oscillate around the rest point. So the, the quicker they oscillate, the more they dissipate energy, the less they can be heard uh, away. So bass which doesn't dissipate energy that, uh, that easy, can be heard from a distance. In an enclosed space, bass will linger more in a place that's not dressed up accordingly to, uh, to absorb bass. So like all the, um, like a carpet at home will absorb voice greatly, but if you start playing drums, they would just leave the room. They would, you know, they... Uh, there would be a problem to your neighbors and all that. And that's the same as how... Uh, it's the same thing... Uh, same situation exists on how bass tra is transmitted through solid walls. That's why studios, uh, like music studios, have like double and triple glazings and uh, you know um, uh, lobbied doors or masonry walls just to try to to retain the sound in rather than escaping and becoming a nuisance to everybody else. So, just to look at this um, wall above the bar here, there's a huge wall above the bar so from the ceiling almost from the from about waist height right up to nearly the ceiling yep. is got something behind slats of wood is that 
acoustically interesting? I mean, wood wool panel, which is uh, recycling woods, like cuttings that made into a new surface that's in, in front of 25 or 50 mil of mineral wool. Both wood wool and mineral wool trap uh, sound in them. And because you can see its texture is so, uh, it's so fine, a sound tries to get in, and when it's, you know, in the process of getting in and getting out of this uh, contraption, then it, it gets refracted and it gets absorbed and it loses its amplitude. So all these, all these surfaces on high on the diagrid are wood wool. Everything on the soffits of the, of the, of the balcony uh, are wood wool. All this is absorbs sound, but it doesn't absorb sound completely. Absorbs sound mostly for the mid and high frequencies and then the slats themselves absorb sound in the for mostly for the bass frequencies and they all have a range of absorption that they apply to the room and then all this gets adds up uh, uh, added up and then the room behaves i mean they will, it will never behave homogeneously like different pockets of the room will, will sound different but there is an overall a room acoustic of the room that we were trying to achieve, and it works. It's um, you know, it's one of those things that maybe you don't realize how, um, like an untrained ear, will still pick up the differences without even knowing how how exactly it works. But this is how. That's the acoustics within the foyer, but there's also the control of sound from outside and from the theatre to the outside. Vangelis took me into the studio space at the Old Vic, a smaller theatre which was built along with the renovations and it had some interesting noise reduction requirements. So we'll have to be slightly hushed tones, but um, can you tell me what you've done in the studio space here? Um, the, um, for noise control, we, um, we were responsible for delivering air and in and out of the room without bringing noise from the streets and putting noise, uh, you know, exposing noise, uh, our neighbours to noise. So there is a, there is a, um, a concrete labyrinth that is to, um, like it's below here. There is like an opening that uh, runs under the foyer. Uh, it's, a, it's a concrete labyrinth and then connects to the high roof above the foyer. So air, uh, cold air, is, goes down and travels through the labyrinth to enter this space and then it exits from the technical uh, balcony where the sound desk is. There's a door there and there's a, um, a heavily padded uh, chimney which is like the extract shaft. So that that has that is fully lined with uh, 100 and 200 mil of um, sun-absorbing uh, like um, foam, open cell foam. So any any noise is being happening here, or the hot air that leaves the room via the chimney uh, it gets absorbed, so it just comes out clean, sound clean, because there are residences um, that just next to the theater. And the other one thing that we did is specify. Acoustically rated glazing and doors, that because uh, the, the studio is right next to a to a busy street, which is uh, I have I have to say it, it was not the best thing we could do. But when you're designing a, um, a building, we have to uh, it's a sort of tug of war between clients and architects, and they wanted to have glazing on the street. We advised them against it. 
they want you know the client gets what the client needs mm. but they have I hear that you know um, there are instances that people on the street can be heard when they're very loud in here because there's only so much we can do with that you know with glazing so Vangelis didn't get absolutely everything he wanted from the acoustics point of view but the old Vic does look and sound wonderful so I'm not surprised that all parties are so pleased with the collaboration as promised we now go to the Bridgewater Hall in Manchester now many years ago before the Bridgewater Hall was built in fact long before more than a handful of people had even thought of the concept of an international concert hall in Manchester my dad stood in an old wasteland car park on the southern edge of the city centre and said to me then a young teenager that one day there'd be trams passing the site and an international concert venue would be standing where we stood it all seemed very far-fetched to me but my dad was nothing if not determined and the Bridgewater Hall was opened in 1996 and the Metrolink runs alongside it connecting parts of Manchester city centre and its surrounding suburbs. When the Bridgewater Hall was opened in September 1996 I became a front of house steward during my holidays from university. So it was something of an emotional trip down memory lane for me to come to the Bridgewater Hall and I was delighted that one of my fellow stewards from way back then was still at the hall. Richard Davies took me on a tour. Years ago, people built a big building, a concert hall, an opera house, a palace, a church. In other words, a building in which they knew music would be performed. And they rather hoped for the best for acoustics. But about 100 or 120 years ago, Two things were invented which made this approach not good. One was the invention of the gramophone, and the other thing that was invented was the wireless. So once these two things had been invented, it meant that people had much higher expectations for listening to music. Now, when you look around the auditorium here, lots of things you can see, most things you can see, are to do with the science of acoustics. Not just a headrest, though you're welcome to rest your head on it, (laughs) but it is very hard wood, and it is to help bounce the notes of music which are played or sung on the stage in the direction of our ears. If you look over the orchestra stage... The light fittings are not, as you might think at first, flat. They are very shallow, upside-down pyramids. Not like the ones in Egypt, quite, but they're that shape. They, again, are to bounce the sound made or by the orchestra or sung by the singers in the direction in which it should go. If you look um, upwards a bit and to your right, you will see the baffles, which are at various different angles... And they are ridged. They, again, are to bounce the notes being played or sung towards your ears. Up above us, up above the light, uh, that is not the roof of the building. It is a ceiling, an internal ceiling. And above that is a 20 or 30 foot emptiness, again to help with resonance 
and acoustics. From the street, the Bridgewater Hall looks like the front of a ship arriving from the Manchester Ship Canal into the city centre. And the auditorium is like a building within the building. More on that later. But back in the auditorium, there is a variable which acoustic technicians need to take into account when building the perfect acoustic for a concert hall. The audience. Another way in which things are absorbed are in the cloth on the seats. And if you feel under your seat, you'll discover it is not solid, it is ridged. Because I'm afraid, this is very sad, but not every seat is sold for every concert. So when the seat is in this upright position, the whole thing, acoustically, not alas financially, is the equivalent of one fully clothed adult sitting in it. So there are no gaps in the acoustic pattern. But the greatest of all aids to acoustics in the building is the building. When you look around, you sometimes see walls where you wouldn't expect quite to see a wall, or things set at an angle you wouldn't expect them to be at. Well, this isn't just a fancy of the architect. It is to do with the acoustic pattern in the auditorium. All around the hall, as you can expect, there are seats, and behind the seats are boards which slide backwards and forwards. As a steward, I used to show people to their seats giving them the room to make their way into their seats and then slide the screens forwards towards the auditorium space. And it's all part of how the acoustic works in the hall. When the building was first being thought about, Fortress even began to be planned, if the sound engineers of Arab were not able to be there, then the meeting was put off until they could because there is no point whatsoever in having a very nice hall, wonderful musicians, if the musicians can't play accurately and the audience can't hear accurately. There was no second guess at this. When the concrete was poured, that was it. It had to be right the first time. So the the architects and the designers, they went to lots of different places and they learnt from what they saw or what they heard there. Sometimes, I'm afraid... They learned from other people's mistakes, but thank goodness it was right. The acoustics are absolutely spot on here for classical music. Now, I'm sure you all know that at concerts of classical music here, or anywhere for that matter, um, there is no amplification system. What is played on the stage or sung on the stage, you hear within a fifth or a sixth of a second, and then no more. We do not want echo, echo, echo. Not with classical music. It's a very precise thing, and it has to be right. And the way it's got right is first by the musicians playing it properly, obviously, and secondly, by the acoustic pattern in our building. So good are the acoustics here that with half a dozen exceptions... It does not matter where you sit. The acoustic sound is more or less... No, not more or less, it is the same wherever you sit. I have to be honest and say, if you sit behind the drums (laughs) there 
behind the timpani section. You'll hear them. And if you sit over there uh, within a cat's bit of the Celeste, and it's rather a Johnny-come-lately to the orchestra, but uh, you will hear it, I'm afraid. But with those two slight exceptions, the sound is the same everywhere, no matter where you sit. I can tell you that as a steward who sat in many seats in the hall, that is indeed true. And I had the chance to test it again as we walked across the auditorium and the musicians were rehearsing for their performance later. You might imagine the sound would change as you walked around the concert venue. Think back to when you're walking to and from your seat at concerts that you've been to. But here, the difference is imperceptible. There are some features which you might expect, like huge, thick doors to insulate the sound. When I was a steward on the lucky nights, when I was on duty inside the auditorium, I would sit and listen to the orchestras performing. On those where I was on duty at the front of house, I would close one set of doors and then the other before beginning a chat with Richard or another member of staff. As I said, the auditorium is like a building within a building. And those corridors between the doors are an acoustic seal between the auditorium and the foyer space. If you are in the auditorium, either playing or listening to music, you really don't want to be aware of what's happening in the foyer spaces out here. And it's rather in the nature of a concert hall that, especially in the second half of a concert, all sorts of jobs which are noisy have to be done out there after the interval. Glasses and cups and things have to be cleared away. Occasionally a bit of hoovering has to be done. So this is how sound is kept out of the auditorium. There are two sets of very heavy doors. They are also blast and fire doors. That's not not their real reason for being there. They're there to keep noise we don't want to hear out of the auditorium. I wanted to know some more detail about the acoustics in the hall. So I met up with someone else. Yeah, my name's Ash Howells. I work here at the Bridgewater Hall, predominantly as a sound technician and um, like the PA systems technician alongside uh, our head of sound, Andy Campbell. We're kind of responsible for the day-to-day acoustic running of the building, I suppose. So you've got a PA system, but isn't it all acoustic? It's not all acoustic. Very early on, they realised that probably classical gigs couldn't sustain the venue um, so we have a mixture. There is the building obviously lends itself to um, uh, anything classical, anything unplugged, as the acoustics are beautiful. But we uh, also have um, yeah amplified shows in quite often. What kind of difference does it make when it's amplified acoustically? The way the acoustics are designed in the hall is to boost certain frequencies which helps certain parts of the orchestra resonate equally, uh, things like double basses. So as soon as you um, put an amplified show in there, all of those sort of small boosts are greatly accentuated so people can have a tough time. Is it basses, bass sounds that are... Yeah, we tend to have um, a boost in frequencies of 160, 200 and 250 hertz and then they continue up the octave and so a lot of tours that come through will find uh, there is a heavy low mid resonance 
within the building that can uh yeah they really have to sort that out early on in sound check kind of thing okay so what kind of thing do you do to, to counteract that well they would do um a lot of uh, i mean it will start with uh pink noise through a system and just check that you're getting out from your speakers uh, and from the room exactly what you're putting in this is pink noise by the way and this is brown noise pink noise slightly higher frequencies so measurement mics pink noise and then um using uh equipment like smart or room eq to um try and flatten out the response of the system in the room a lot of uh yeah EQing cuts and graphic cuts I would say so each tour will come with a systems technician but then we're responsible for helping their system tie into our system so that um they can use uh like there we have throughout the uh the auditorium a lot of delay speakers as well as just the main array so we try and ensure that every seat has the same quality of sound and so um any areas where we feel our delays can help the the touring system that has been brought in we would then work with them to time align and also to eq in order to uh yeah provide a consistency across the hall because i've been to a few of the concerts here which are uh, sort of plugged in concerts and i think if not all of them almost all of them at some point the performer will turn everything off and just do a bit of singing or something or acoustic often people do do that just in order to hear the acoustics of the building which are lovely is it sort of a frustration then for for tourists who are coming here when when they've got to plug in how long does it take for them to kind of balance it oh no i think um the the guys that come through and um and our sound team here are both experienced uh they're in a different venue every day obviously and we know this venue so we're able to help them give them a head start so it's not i wouldn't say it's a long process but i really think the challenges it presents are no different to any other large hall um or large reflective hall Mm. so as a sound engineer myself i've always enjoyed engineering here Mm. i think um you can you get out a lot if you're sensitive about what you put in okay do you so do you get involved at all in sort of the straight orchestral things is there any role for you in, as a sound engineer in that or is it just the hall looks after the acoustics well it can range um we can uh we often have orchestral shows uh that are also mic'd up um that would be like some of the halle pop shows or um if it's an orchestra with a sort of modern pop singer uh, then we're definitely 100% involved but really if people are coming to a straight orchestral show that uh, we don't need to touch it the building really does do the work for you maybe we would adjust the height of uh, the big glass reflectors that are over the stage but that is more for um, for the orchestra to hear themselves uh, they might find it a little heavy and reflective on stage and we can take those um the glass reflectors out or they might want them a little closer in to be able to hear a little more of themselves back yeah. so um yeah i would say uh, those are the things that are on the light fittings yeah exactly yeah yeah okay. they're light fittings combined with uh sound deflectors yeah. or reflectors which uh, enable the orchestra to to hear more of themselves than they would if the sound was just disappearing into a, a large empty roof you know when they, when you uh, look around the the hall it's got the beveled bits 
in the in the concrete there are certain bevels uh within the concrete and um you'll notice there are also wood reflection panels it's hard to predict um exactly what each of those are doing but they're all um hard reflective surfaces anything from 100 hertz upwards uh is fairly reflective within the room um yeah is the beveling effect just so it isn't a flat surface is that no i i would imagine that it does cut down on standing waves but then obviously because of the um resonance of the sort of bass frequencies there obviously are a few standing waves within the room but i think it's the way i look at them the they seem positioned in order to um deflect sound towards the audience and um possibly even reflect a bit of sound back towards the stage um, to help the musicians which again is um, something that is probably not totally desirable for an amplified show There is however an acoustic issue peculiar to the Bridgewater Hall which has a particularly brilliant solution We walked through a door on the ground floor and began descending further down more steps and emerged underneath the building Grey gravel slopes with concrete paths between them enable people to walk among the huge concrete pillars which extend up through the ceiling above us. Enormous silver pipes dominate parts of the void, but there is something quite extraordinary. All around, the exterior walls of the building do not seem to touch the floor. You can literally see daylight between the ground and the exterior walls of the building it's floating yes if you walk around the edge of the building there's around a like a two millimeter crack that separates it from the uh, the noise floor of manchester so the building was designed to be um standing on pillars which basically isolate it from uh, any exterior noise from um from manchester especially the trams going by uh so it cuts down on all of the vibrations that any normal building would feel interacting with uh, with Manchester city centre, basically. Uh, um, so the pillars will um, be obviously burrowed into the foundations, and then, yeah, these are the large, um, basically, pillars throughout the building uh, which um, hold the building up and yet are also sprung. Yes, on each concrete column there is a break in the concrete and a green block containing black springs. The Bridgewater Hall is built on springs. Very early on in the proceedings, a firm of consultants was called in who specialise in building in earthquake countries. When the site was cleared, Lang, the construction people, they excavated 151 round holes until they got down to bedrock. Bedrock, this end of the building, front door end of the building, is a well, it was then, about 20 or 30 feet below the then pavement level. The other end, the organ end, as it were, it's about 60 or 70 feet below pavement level because we're on the slope of a little valley that leads down to the River Medlock. Into each of these holes, they lowered one of these reinforced concrete piers and they go up and up and up and up until they get to where we were at first up in the gallery just above us 
and they hold up the roof of the building now. Before they go much further than here, each of these comes into contact with one or more of these green boxes. And each of these green boxes contains either 28 or 32 springs. And they're exactly like bed springs. Bed springs, I think, are about the size of a, um, a thick wire. These are about as thick as your middle finger, I should think. But they are just ordinary springs. They're not made out of any special material. And this is how the vibrations kept out of the Bridgewater Hall. Because at school, I was tormented with O-level physics. And in those days, in O-level physics, we learnt about the laws of the universe. Coiled spring kills vibration. If you've got a coiled spring and you some, put something that vibrates one end of it, the vibration does not come out at the other. And as I say, this is how vibration is kept out of the Bridgewater Hall, because either directly or indirectly, the whole of the Bridgewater Hall reposes on these springs. Do you know how many springs there are? Well, I think it's about 180,000 of them. The spring system is incredibly effective. There was, famously, a bomb which went off in Manchester city centre while the hall was being built. It was, I thought, impossible to not know about the bomb, but the people working in the hall that day had no idea. Thank you very much to the Halle Orchestra who allowed us to play the clip from The Apostles Opus 49, Part 1, by Elgar, which was recorded in the Bridgewater Hall in 2012. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast as we've explored the acoustics for audiences. And if you'd like to know more, then I do highly recommend Anna Deming's article, in the Physics World magazine this month. And don't forget to check out the Physics World weekly podcast. And we'll be back next month for the Physics World Stories podcast with something else from this wonderful world of physics. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.